This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the August issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, longtime JCC Jewish Federation staffers retiring. Picnic at Boonshaft CJCE August 21st in their honor. With a combined 83 years of service, four employees of the Jewish Federation and its Jewish Community Center will retire by the fall. The Federation and JCC will host a retirement celebration picnic in their honor on Sunday, August 21st from noon to 2 p.m. at the Boonshaft Center for Jewish Culture and Education. Audrey McKenzie, who, who will retire in the fall, has worked in the JCC's early childhood program for 20 years. 17 of them as its director. Her career in early childhood spans 44 years. JCC early childhood teacher Cindy Turner, the longest serving employee with the Federation, retires August 5th. She began her work with the late Linda A. Cohen when the JCC's early childhood program was based in Trotwood. Turner has taught with the JCC for 28 years and has been in the kid business for 32 years. Joyce Graham, who has taught with JCC Early Childhood for 15 years, retires July 28th. She's been in the field for 39 years. Karen Steiger has served as front desk receptionist of the Boonshaft CJCE for 20 years since it opened. She retires 20 years to the day of her start date, August 15th, 2022. We've been blessed with Audrey, Cindy, and Joyce who have sparked our children's learning for nearly a generation with their creativity and talents, said Jewish Federation CEO Kathy Gardner. For so many years, Karen has been the first face to greet parents and children every day here at the Boonshop CJCE, home to our early childhood, knowing the names of each of them. We're grateful for all that our uh, retirees have given of themselves to all who benefit from our programs. The Kosher Picnic is free and open to the entire community. The Boonshop CJCE is located at 525 Versailles Drive, Centerville. RSVP to Alyssa Thomas, A-T-H-O-M-A-S at jfgd.net or 937-610-1796. Beth Jacob Movie Afternoon. Beth Jacob Congregation will screen the movie The Courageous Heart of Irena Sendler at 3 p.m. Sunday, August 21st. A social worker who was part of the Polish underground Sandler smuggled nearly 2,500 Jewish children out of the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. Beth Jacob is located at 720 North Main Street, Harrison Township. RSVP for the free movie at Beth Jacob 1, that's number 1, Beth Jacob numeral 1 at AOL.com. Bethor Art and Music Cafe. Temple Bethor will host its third annual Art and Music Cafe at 6.30 p.m. Saturday, August 27th featuring photographers, painters, woodcrafters, live music, appetizers, desserts, and adult drinks. Tickets, for adults only, are $25 and are available through August 22nd at templebethor.com forward slash art dash music dash cafe. Temple Bethor is located at 5275 Marshall Road, Washington Township. And to call for reservations, the number is 
Next from the Observer, Holocaust exhibit at Air Force Museum ready to return, uh, ready for return of school groups. Longtime local Holocaust educator Renate Friedman has noticed an uptick in Holocaust education in schools. For a while, there was less teaching of it, the Dayton Holocaust Education Committee chair says. Now, I think with the world the way it is, there are more teachers teaching the Holocaust than you can ever imagine. Her hope is that after more than two years of dis disruption to in-person learning because of COVID, teachers will bring their middle and high school students back to Prejudice and Memory, a Holocaust exhibit at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Friedman is the curator of the exhibit, which has been on permanent display at the Air Force Museum since 1999. It was among the first in the United States to focus on a community's local survivors, liberators, and rescuers. These are your neighbors, one display proclaims of those featured in the exhibit. Most have since passed on. Their testimonies and artifacts keep their memory and their lessons they taught alive. Museum restoration volunteer Dave London completed the long-needed renovations to the exhibit at the end of June. There was a lot of recognition that this area was beaten up bad, says London, a retired Air Force engineer who has volunteered in the museum's exhibit areas for about a year and a half. A lot of the walls of the exhibit are actually made out of styrofoam and pieces are broken off. It was not looking great, and everybody recognized that something had to be done, but the question was what? London tested some possible solutions on the pillars at the entrance of the exhibit. He tried various paints and coatings to see what would stand up best to the amount of traffic coming through. Once I found something that worked well, a couple of coats of thick sealant, and the texturing and different color paints over that, I came through and did the whole display. That was my project for the good part of a month. I've never done anything like that before, so I'm just really happy with the way it came. I was glad to see how it looks, Friedman adds, and it's solid. The lighting is also different. It's lower now to protect the artifacts. Friedman and museum-trained volunteers lead school groups on tours of the exhibit, which bridges the space between the World War I and World War II galleries, with some exhibit elements incorporated into the World War II gallery. The way they've changed the flow of people since COVID, pretty much everybody who visits has to come through here, London says. It's part of the normal flow. It's very personal, Friedman says, of how visitors are drawn to elements in the exhibit. Most people stop at one particular place that attracts them. They want to know more about it. Such places include the Buchenwald concentration camp uniform of survivor Morris Baumstein, the accordion 14-year-old Gertrude Wolfkahn took, with her when she was rescued from Nazi Germany through the kinder transport program, and the violin her husband, Robert Kahn, was forced to play at age 15 on Kristallnacht as Nazis beat his father. Air Force Museum Education Specialist Patrick D. Hannon notes the concentration camp uniform is a rare artifact. Most were destroyed or disposed of, he explains. London points to a student-made Holocaust-themed quilt displayed on a wall in the exhibit. That quilt was made by my daughter's class in junior high school, London says. In the top right corner, the guy who did that square, he's now the mayor of Cincinnati. Friedman knows the difference each teacher can make when it comes to fighting hate, 
She cites the national backlash when a Tennessee school board voted to cut Art Spiegelman's Pulitzer-winning Holocaust graphic novel, Mouse, from its middle school curriculum earlier this year. Teachers are often independent in their thinking, she says. We're not talking politics. We're talking in the way they think and feel. And so, yes, there are certain things they know they need to adhere to, but there are also things they want to do. And many teachers find a way to put the Holocaust in in remarkable ways sometimes. They believe it should be taught, and they see results. Over in the World War II gallery is a French railroad car constructed in 1943. Millions of Holocaust victims were herded into this kind of boxcar and sent to concentration camps. Allied prisoners of war were also transported to German POW camps in these boxcars, some even to Buchenwald concentration camp. According to the information at this exhibit, 168 Allied POWs were moved from Paris to the Buchenwald concentration camp in August of 1944, Hannon explains. Many of these POWs were air crews that had been shot down. Those of Jewish faith were separated from the other POWs and shipped to concentration camps. This rail car, part of the Prejudice and Memory Tour, was airlifted to the Air Force Museum in 2001. At one time, Friedman says she had 15 volunteers who led tours of Prejudice and Memory, several of them survivors. I've lost a few due to illness, she says. But now there are people coming up who want to be exhibit volunteers, either from the volunteer group that's here, which is 500 or close to it, or from outside. In July, Friedman led the Holocaust Education Committee's annual retreat. Some participants said they'd like to become exhibit volunteers. All of the Holocaust exhibit volunteers have had something in their life that relates to this, Friedman says. We've had a lot of retired teachers. Friedman originally designed Prejudice and Memory as a mobile exhibit in 1997. For more than a year, she had collected artifacts from local survivors, liberators, and rescuers. Prejudice and Memory had been on display at 10 sites across southwest Ohio when the late retired Major General Charles D. Metcalf, then director of the Air Force Museum, invited Friedman to display the exhibit at the Air Force Museum from February through September 1999. About two weeks into it, General Metcalf said, What would you say if I told you we want it permanently? I almost fainted at that moment, and here it is. In the last full year before COVID, the museum hosted approximately 750,000 visitors. Admission to the museum is free to all. Friedman says she and the Holocaust exhibit volunteers talk with student groups about prejudice, bullying, respect, and anti-Semitism. They think about it, she says of the students, with the whole atmosphere of the museum and the exhibit being together in a place where someone tells them the story they've never heard. They feel the element of remembrance. The Holocaust Education Committee can also provide grants to schools unable to pay for transportation to the museum exhibit. We don't want any school not to be able to come because they can't pay for buses. Hannon notes that when Friedman shares her own story and gives tours of the exhibit, Kids that are normally rambunctious and a challenge to have focus are uh, to have focus are solemn and attentive. Renate emphasizes how hate and, prejudi- and prejudice can get out of control and how one person can make a difference. This is probably a message that the teachers have been trying to get across to their students, but until they see the extreme consequences, it doesn't sink in. Both teachers and students are left humbled by the experience. 
with the unknown of how new variants of COVID will play out over the coming months, Friedman hopes for the best. It's up to the schools, the districts. Are they going to allow more field trips? Now that the museum is open, they can come. Hopefully they will come. To schedule student tours of prejudice and memory, a Holocaust exhibit at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, contact the Museum's Education Division at 937-255-8048. For information about transportation grants, contact Renee Friedman at rfrydman25 at gmail.com. And next from the Dayton section of the Observer, Jewish Federation annual meeting to celebrate JCC's centennial. The 100th birthday of the Jewish Community Center is the theme for the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton and its agency's 2022 annual meeting at 5.30 p.m. Wednesday, August 17th at the Boonshaft Center for Jewish Culture and Education. The Federation will elect and install its new board members and honor its retiring board members at the annual meeting. This year's award recipients for contributions to the Dayton Jewish community are Mike Goldstein, Past President's Award, Bruce Feldman, Robert A. Shapiro Award, Ruth Meadow, Jack Moss Creativity Award, Jody Sobel, JFS Volunteer Award, Candice R. Quietek, JCC Volunteer Award, Barbara Gerla, JCRC Volunteer Award, given posthumously, and Elaine Bettman, Joe Bettman Memorial Tzaddik Award. To celebrate the JCC's centennial, Dayton Jewish Observer editor and publisher Marshall Weiss will share stories and images of how and why Dayton's JCC was established a century ago. The list of nominees to the Federation Board is available at jewishdayton.org. The Federation's annual meeting will include a champagne toast and heavy hors d'oeuvres, heavy kosher hors d'oeuvres. The Boonshaft CJCE is located at 525 Versailles Drive, Centerville, RSVP at jewishdayton.org or 937-610-1555. Field day and lunch, July 31st. With the theme, Reignite Your Mind, Body, and Spirit, Beth Abraham Synagogue will host a field day and dairy kosher lunch from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Sunday, July 31st at Indian Riffle Park, 2801 East Stroop Road, Kettering. The free program is for all ages and will be held in partnership with Beth Jacob Congregation, Chabad, Hillel Academy, the JCC Early Childhood Program, PJ Library, Temple Beth Lohr, and Temple Israel through a Jewish Federation Innovation Grant. RSVP for lunch at jewishdayton.org. Young Adults Weekend at Camp Livingston. Dayton's JCC is a partner with Summer Camp for Adults 20s and 30s weekend Friday, August 12th through Sunday, August 14th at Camp Livingston in Bennington, Indiana. All Jewish young adults in the Miami Valley are invited to join the program. It's a great opportunity to meet other Jewish young adults in their 20s and 30s and have a great time with new and old friends, said Francis Cahan, Director of Cultural Arts and Engagement at the Meyerson JCC in Cincinnati, which is also an event partner along with the camp the Jewish Federation of Cincinnati Young Adult Division, and Jewish Foundation of Cincinnati. The weekend will begin with a camp-style Shabbat dinner and service under the stars. Campers will sleep in cabins or have the option of bring-your-own-tent camping and have access to lakefront activities including water skiing, kayaking, canoeing, tubing, a high ropes course, climbing wall, other sports, and arts and crafts. 
Joining the camp for the weekend will be comedian Eric Newman, who has performed on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. The cost is $159 per person, with registration discounted to $99 for the first 50 registrants. For more information and to register, go to camplivingston.com young adult. New Jewish news outlet coming to Cincinnati. Jewfolk Incorporated, parent organization of TC Jewfolk, a news site that covers the Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota area, announced July 12th it's creating a Jewish news site for Cincinnati, Cincy Jewfolk. In a statement announcing the launch, Jewfolk said its goal in Cincinnati is to leverage its news platform to increase connectivity and engagement among underrepresented segments in the Jewish community, especially families with young children, young adults, and interfaith families. Jewfolk enters the Jewish Cincinnati market with initial support from the Jewish Foundation of Cincinnati, which awarded it $28,500 from its new Reflect Cincy initiative. The foundation established Reflect Cincy to fund new ideas to spark meaning and connection to Jewish life. Cincinnati is home to the oldest continuously published English-language Jewish newspaper in the United States. Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, architect of Reform Judaism in the United States, established the American Israelite in 1854 as a national Jewish publication. Ultimately, the weekly became Cincinnati's local Jewish newspaper. Since 1998, it has been owned and operated by Nathaniel Ted Deutsch. Its local content generally comprises press releases from Cincinnati Jewish organizations. According to Jewfolk Executive Director Libby Parker, Jewfolk has been planning to bring its Twin Cities media model to similar Jewish communities for a couple of years. It will organize micro-communities online and in person, in line with how Jewfolk determines Cincinnati Jews want to be connected. In Minnesota, Jewfolk facilitates job networking and advice Facebook group for Jewish professionals, and the Minnesota Mamalas Group. Lonnie Goldsmith, Jew Folks Editor and Director of Communications, said its social media presence is up and running. There's a long runway. We have built ourselves for when we'll staff on the ground in the area. And next from the Observer, Youngstown area teen plan to target synagogue congregants, members of black community. 15-year-old arrested after threats found on his phone by Courtney Burns, Cleveland Jewish News. The Struthers Police Department arrested a 15-year-old in June after he threatened to kill his father and revealed plans to target a synagogue and black people. The police in Struthers, a suburb of Youngstown, were alerted by the FBI June 17th that the teen was live-streaming when he made the threat against his father, who was asleep in the adjacent room. He was arrested at his home where two handguns and over 100 rounds of ammunition were collected as evidence. James Pash, the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, tweeted a statement regarding the incident. ADL is deeply horrified and troubled by alleged plans for an anti-black, anti-Semitic attack in our community. We are thankful that law enforcement acted quickly in taking this threat and individual seriously we remain in close contact with our partners in Youngstown. This incident mirrors a dangerous rise in violent extremism that we are seeing across the country. Youngstown is no place for hate, and we will fight anti-Semitism, racism, and extremism wherever we see them. 
Pash was unavailable for further comment when contacted by the Cleveland Jewish News. A search warrant of the teen's cell phone revealed a video stating his plans according to police reports. He was going to kill his father and take his father's van, and his game plan was to kill as many black people as he can on his way to a Jewish synagogue and then shoot people at the synagogue, Struthers detective Tommy Schneeman said July 8th. The teen has been charged with making terroristic threats, domestic violence, inducing panic and threatening violence, and possessing criminal tools. In a statement to the CJN, Andrew Lipkin, CEO of Youngstown Area Jewish Federation, said, We are aware of the arrest of a Struthers, Ohio teen on charges of making terroristic threats, domestic violence, including inducing panic and possessing criminal tools, and that some of the threats were anti-Semitic in, in nature. We do not believe there is a threat to the local Jewish community at this time. As always, our security team is working with law enforcement, local law enforcement, to ensure the safety of all members of the local Jewish community and all who work with and visit the Youngstown Area Jewish Federation and its agencies. We are grateful for our partnerships with local law enforcement and will work with them to ensure the security of our entire Federation campus and to support their efforts to bring those responsible for anti-Semitic crimes to justice. Racist and anti-Semitic messages and symbols and Nazi propaganda were discovered on the firearms, the teen's phone, and a journal turned in to the police by the teen's father, the reports said. The teens told police he was distraught over losing his mother and the strained relationship with his father. He also stated he was a white supremacist and neo-Nazi sympathizer and despised all those associated with the Black Lives Matter movement and the LGBTQ community, reports said. Following his arrest, the teen was transported to Mercy Health Hospital in downtown Youngstown and later Windsor Laurelwood Behavior Health Center in Willoughby for a mental evaluation. He was released from the health center July 1st and transported to the Mahoney County Juvenile Justice Center. And next from the opinion section of The Observer, A Call to Counter Anti-Semitism by Justin Kirshner. When you look at the FBI hate crime statistics for Ohio, it would be easy to assume that the Jewish population has it rather good. In 2020, the latest year for which figures are available, there were 10 anti-Jewish crimes reported. Most were for damage or vandalism of property. There were no physical assaults tied to anti-Semitism. Yet at the same time, we have to deal with the likes of Matthew Slatzer, a Canton ex-con who was seen at a 2020 anti-COVID mandate rally at the State House in Columbus holding a sign depicting a rat and the Star of David with the words, The Real Plague. Slatzer had also walked into a store with a hatchet and sword and asked for directions to Kent State University, where he heard there were, there were a lot of Jews. You could write that off as the fulminations of an extremist rather than a sickness taking hold of society, but many Jews I know and work with feel something is different, that something is off. There is a palpable sense of unease that may not have existed even a few years ago before white supremacists in Charlottesville in 2018 bellowed, Jews will not replace us. Indeed, Ohio has the second largest number of extremist anti-government groups as documented by the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
Not all are racist or anti-Semitic, but there are enough that traffic in conspiracy theories that inevitably scapegoat Jews for them to be a cause of concern. Moreover, when the American Jewish Committee last year released the findings from its latest State of Anti-Semitism in America survey, we learned that some 90% of Jews surveyed believe anti-Semitism is a problem. Nearly 25% say they were the victim, said they were the victim of some kind of anti-Semitic incident. Perhaps the most troubling revelation, some 39% of Jews said they had altered their behavior to conceal the fact they were Jewish. That included not wearing a kippah or a Star of David in public and posting or commenting about pro-Israel content on social media, and it was younger Jews, 52%, who were the ones most likely to change their behavior. That is evident every time we walk into a synagogue where armed security accompanies our worship. The emotional scars from the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh in 2018 or the Chabad House in Poway, California a year later may never heal. When a gunman took hostages at a synagogue in Coleyville, Texas in January, it was easy to assume the worst. That everyone but the gunman made it out alive was as much a surprise to many as it was a relief. So where does that leave us in Ohio? Governor Mike DeWine has taken a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. He issued an order for the state to recognize the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which he noted is a disturbing problem in American society, including here in Ohio. However, the IHRA definition, while important and recognized globally, is non-binding and carries no legal weight. So by necessity, fighting anti-Semitism is a top priority at the American Jewish Committee, where I serve as Cincinnati Regional Director. Put simply, we are tired of playing defense. That is why we conduct anti-Semitism trainings throughout the country, including with government officials, law enforcement, the media, including Cincinnati-based Scripps Media, and the public. For many, a presentation on anti-Semitism at the Jewish Cultural Festival at Temple Israel in Dayton was a revelation, to say the least. It is why we put out Translate Hate, a a comprehensive glossary of anti-Semitic terms which explains why certain phrases and words are anti-Jewish. Too often we find that people grew up hearing terms like Jew down or poisoning the well without realizing why they are so hurtful. It is also why AJC co-founded the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council in 2016, a national initiative with regional relationship-building activities, because we know the more that faiths understand and respect each other, the more we can stand in solidarity against hate and prejudice. During the hostage standoff in Colleyville, imams were at the sides of Jewish leaders to show the support at a time when a Muslim was holding hostages at gunpoint. Colleyville is an example of why AJC places a premium on its relationships with law enforcement on the local, state, and national levels. To have the best chance at tackling anti-Semitism, we must first know the extent of the problem. There were only 10 anti-Jewish crimes reported in Ohio in uh, 2020. Emphasis on reported. Because numerous studies have found that hate crimes, be they motivated by religion, race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation, are notoriously underreported by police and victims. You're only as good as your information. The FBI relies on statistics from the state, 
But as WKEF-TV in Dayton reported last year, only 547 of the state's nearly 900 law enforcement agencies submitted data to the Ohio Office of Criminal Justice Services. It strains credulity to assume that hundreds of police departments had no hate crimes occur, especially when Ohio's hate crime rate in 2018 was nearly double the national average. Police must do a better job of partnering with affected communities, identifying hate crimes, and properly document them so the full extent of the problem can be known. We know what law enforcement should do. What should you do? Speak out. If you see an anti-Semitic incident or are the victim of one, don't just tell your friends or rabbi. Tell the local police or contact your local FBI office to report a hate crime. There may be other similar incidents. The more they know, the better they are able to catch a perpetrator and inform policy using the data they have. Learn more. Many of us know anti-Semitism when we hear or see it, but knowing how or why is essential to stopping it or educating others about why it is wrong. AJC's Combating Anti-Semitism Collection, available on the AJC website, is an excellent resource. I guarantee you will learn something new. Take action. There are a few core steps that you can take to help alleviate anti-Semitic concerns in your community. Help people understand diverse Jewish peoplehood and that anti-Semitism is more than just a religious bigotry. Strive to include anti-Semitism education as part of your school, organization, or workplace's DEI efforts. Stand in solidarity with other minority communities and ensure your elected officials know this is a priority for you and, for that matter, the sanctity of our democracy. As much as anything, always be Jewish and proud. Anti-Semitism may be the world's oldest hatred, but we will keep finding new ways to beat it back. We will not run and hide no more, never again. Justin Kirshner is Regional Director of the American Jewish Committee in Cincinnati. And next from the Observer, the Mazel Tov column. United Way of Greater Dayton presented its 2022 Humanitarian of the Year Award to the Clavin family at the Nutter Center on June 28th. Since 2001, Morris Furniture Company and the Clavin family have provided more than 14,000 beds to children in need, partnering with Secret Smiles of Dayton, United Way of Greater Dayton, Society of St. Vincent de Paul of Cincinnati, and Furniture Bank of Central Ohio. Morris and its nearly 500 employees have made this possible through Morris Hope to Dream events. On the day of the award ceremony, Morris closed its stores and distribution center as a kickoff to its 75th anniversary celebration. Senior U.S. District Judge Walter H. Rice is the inaugural recipient of the National Conference for Community Injustice's Trailblazer Legacy Award. He'll be honored at NCCJ's 2022 Friendship Celebration, an evening of music, entertainment, and food trucks from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, September 20th at the Levitt Pavilion. This year's NCCJ humanitarian honorees are Judge Tony Capizzi, Shannon Isom, Barbara Johnson, Michael Note, Michaela Petrovic, Petrovic and Carolyn Rice. Anna Claire Gaglione received her law degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Law. She is the daughter of John and Elaine Gaglione and granddaughter of Charles and Joan Nolf and the late Vincent and Monica Gaglione. The Miriam Rosenthal Foundation, 
Dayton's only foundation dedicated solely to the arts, is looking for new board members. The board oversees its operations, including investments, grant policies, research, and community support. We seek members who are active within our local community and who love and attend performances of those organizations supported by the foundation, board chairman Richard McCauley says. If you're interested, contact Richard at richard.mccauley1 at frontier.com. Send your Mazel Tov announcements to me, Marshall Weiss, at mweiss at jfgd.net. Next from the religion section of The Observer, Unravel Your Potential by Rabbi Levi Simon, Chabad of Greater Dayton. The story is told about an important member of the Jewish community who passed away. His children received two envelopes, one to be opened upon his death and the other a week later. They opened the first envelope and read their father's words. He explained that in his closet was his favorite tie full of sentimental value. He instructed his children to ensure he would be buried while wearing this tie. This simple request, however, was met with great resistance. Jewish law mandates that every individual from the greatest rabbi to the simplest of people be buried in the same way. Uniforms, clothing, and any other extras are strictly forbidden. No matter what the children said or offered was going to change that. A week later they opened the second envelope. In this letter the father wrote that he hoped his children understood his message of the tie. The father knew that the tie was not going with him. He hoped that his children realized that one cannot even take a simple piece of clothing with them to the next world. The only things of sentiment and value, wrote the father, are good and positive deeds one has accomplished in this world. People enter into heated arguments about important matters. Many have become political experts, spending inordinate amounts of time on the issues they feel are important. Some are experts in sports, some can wax poetic about history, science, technology, or food, demonstrating expertise and boasting all they know about these subjects. Few of these have any meaning. The energy spent on them are going to the same place as that tie. They will remain hanging in the closet. What really matters is, what have I done to live up to the godly image in which I was created? What have I done for the rest of humanity, all created in the image of God? This takes a deep look into ourselves, into our souls. When one focuses upon the inner areas of oneself, one can begin to unravel the potential present in every person and making the most of it. Rabbi Mendel Fertes was a legendary rabbi. The rabbi had spent some eight awful years in the Soviet gulag, as punishment for his efforts to preserve Judaism in the dark days of communism in the 1940s and 1950s. The rabbi related how one day his fellow inmates started a spirited game of cards, strictly illegal in the gulag. Upon hearing the loud noises, the guard immediately recognized the card game and came barging into the cell. Okay, hand over the cards, he barked. The cards were nowhere to be found. This continued several times until the guard forced every inmate to undress and he went through all their clothing. But to no avail, the cards were not found. 
Later, Reb Mendel asked the ringleader what had happened to the cards. The hardened criminal responded, We are professional pickpockets. When the guard entered, we professionals placed the cards in his back pocket. On his way out, we pulled them out. Reb Mendel, always wanted to teach a lesson from his stories, concluded, We look and search everywhere for truth. If we merely paid attention to our own back pockets, we would be able to resolve many of life's issues. Imagination is not the place for people to dwell. True, it is critical to have a vision and a dream. Life, though, needs to be real. That takes a hard and real look into oneself, and to include close family members and friends, to become real, really productive, and really focused. And then we will all be blessed with all good things. We will be productive and fruitful amid a spirit of happiness and contentment. And next, the Jewish Family Education section of The Observer, Being Zusya, the Power of Stories series by Candace R. Quietek. A zoology professor assigned a paper on the topic of elephants to his graduate-level international students. The English student wrote Elephant Hunting. The French student wrote The Love Life of the Elephant. The German student wrote an introduction to the bibliography for the study of the elephant. The American student wrote Greeting Bigger and Better Elephants, and the Israeli student wrote The Elephant and the Jewish Problem. Recounted by folklorist Josepha Sherman, this anecdote is emblematic. Both individuality and community are sacred tenets in Judaism. There are no clones in God's world, declares author Gila Mandelson. Everyone is an individual. We each have our own ways of thinking, our own approaches to experiencing the world, our own manner of expressing ourselves. We have our own dispositions, histories, and opinions, and we each have our own souls. Individuality is evident in the personalities and behaviors of Adam and Eve in the garden. Jacob expresses this fundamental idea when he bestows upon his sons not one universal blessing, but twelve blessings, each uniquely tailored to a specific son. The Talmud embeds it in an allegory. A person stamps many coins with one seal, and they are all alike, but the king of all kings has stamped every person with the seal of the first human, yet not one of them is like another. Individuality also suggests that each person has a positive purpose in the world, a unique mission for which they are specifically equipped. Inclinations or abilities may reveal one's mission, Circumstances or events may illuminate it. Sometimes it will fall in one's lap. Regardless of its origin, however, every mission is one of a kind. Individuality cannot exist in a vacuum. It implies community. Rabbi Aryeh Malka notes that the true purpose of community is to unite and uplift individuals, facilitate their growth, and empower individuality. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs concurs. Individuality means that I am a unique and valued member of a team. Judaism values individuality, not individualism. The words of Eleanor Roosevelt offer a surprisingly Jewish link to the following stories. You have not only the right to be an individual, you have an obligation to be one. Shepherd to Sage Poor and illiterate, Akiva was a shepherd for a wealthy Jerusalemite 
whose only child, Rachel, was expected to marry an equally rich scholar. Instead, she fell in love with Akiva and they married. Convinced he had an excellent mind, Rachel encouraged Akiva to study. Although skeptical, the 40-year-old began with the Aleph Bet alongside the youngest children, mastered reading and writing, and eventually went on to study at the academy. There, even the greatest scholars of the era developed a deep admiration for his insight and wisdom. After more than two decades, Akiva returned home as a famous rabbi with a following of 24,000 students. Akiva went on to become a leading contributor to the Mishnah and is known in the Talmud as Chief of the Sages. Sometimes a person's individuality, their gift, and their purpose is revealed by someone else. White to Black The son of poor Polish immigrants, Jacob Ezra Katz, loved to draw and paint. At five, he covered the white kitchen table with detailed ink drawings of houses, ships, and planes. He was just eight when hired to paint a local store's sign. By high school, he was winning awards. Despite the Great Depression, he persevered, painting murals for the WPA, illustrating backgrounds for Marvel Comics, and designing camouflage patterns for the military. Sidestepping widespread anti-Semitism, he changed his name to Ezra Jack Keats and became a highly successful commercial illustrator. His most significant accomplishment was writing and illustrating the award-winning picture book, A Snowy Day, the first mainstream children's book featuring an African-American child. None of the manuscripts I'd been illustrating featured any black kids Keats wrote. My book would have him there simply because he should have been there all along. Sometimes circumstances reveal one's individuality and task. Pen to paper. The Jewish-English woman Eliza Davis admired her fellow Londoner Charles Dickens, whose novels were, besides entertainment, social critiques designed to raise awareness and help the vulnerable. While reading Oliver Twist, however, Eliza became more and more distraught. The Jewish character Fagin was described in the most negative of terms. The leader of a gang of thieves, he was the Jew, a loathsome reptile, and the Old One, a popular nickname for the devil. Eliza wasn't a prominent figure in the city, but she picked up her pen and wrote to the renowned author anyway. She argued that Dickens' characterization of Fagin encouraged a vile prejudice against the despised Hebrew, and that he had done a great wrong to the Jewish people. She added that while the author Charles Dickens lives, the author can justify himself or atone. Although defensive at first, Dickens eventually revised the text for the reprinting of Oliver Twist, changing the Jew to Fagin. Dickens' next novel, Our Mutual Friend, featured a Mr. Rhea from the Hebrew Rhea, meaning friend. Eliza thanked Dickens and then sent one one final note to him in the copy of an English Hebrew Bible. The noblest quality man can possess is the, the ability to atone. Sometimes events seem to just drop a mission into the lap of someone whose individuality is uniquely suited to it. There are no clones in God's world. Before his death, Rabbi Zusius said to his disciples, In the coming world they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zusia? And literature to share, as suggested by Candace Arquiatech, Under Jerusalem, the Buried History of the World's Most Contested City by Andrew Lawler. 
More than just a history book, Under Jerusalem is storytelling at its finest. Each chapter recounts untold tales of archaeological digs under Jerusalem streets and notable sites by fortune seekers, zealots, and archaeologists. Along with priceless artifacts, their endeavors have revealed troves of information that helped the reader better understand Jerusalem's ancient history, theological issues, and modern conflicts. This innovative perspective on Jerusalem is immensely interesting, thought-provoking, and diplomatically even-handed in its presentation. And Jose and the Pirate Captain Toledano by Joshua Edelglass and Arnon Shore. Swashbuckling Pirates, a teen freak, family secrets. When the Inquisition arrives in the New World, Portuguese teen emigre Jose Alfaro has just learned of his Jewish identity. He evades the Spanish crown soldiers by stowing away on a pirate ship, eventually training to become a pirate under the mysterious Captain Toledano. What follows is a fast-paced, swashbuckling tale of adventure and hand-to-hand combat on the high seas as Jose discovers who he really is and what really matters. It's a wonderfully crafted coming-of-age graphic novel for middle grade. Next, from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, Gangsters vs. Nazis, Decidedly Cinematic Nonfiction. It's a review of the book Gangsters vs. Nazis, How Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America by Michael Benson, published this year by Citadel Books, 283 pages, and the book review is by Martin Gottlieb, special to The Observer. Jewish gangsters have shown up in plenty of Hollywood movies, but typically they just happen to be Jewish. If the author of this book sees his apparent dream fulfilled, there will be a movie in which their Jewishness is the whole point. Gangsters vs. Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America, is decidedly cinematic, and the author doesn't want that point lost on anybody. He labels his preamble Fade In and writes it in the form of a screenplay beginning paragraphs with words such as interior and exterior. And the story is a doozy of what Hollywood calls a high concept, one that is easily pitched. A certain judge in New York decides in the late 1930s that Hitler supporters in the United States, a very visible group, need to get the message that Jews are not going to just sit back and take their slander, are not going to live up to any stereotype of themselves as weak, unphysical people. The judge gets on the phone and calls the top Jewish mobster in each of multiple cities across the country and asks each to bust up Nazi events with physical violence, but not to kill anybody. All the mobsters agree enthusiastically, though there's nothing in it for them financially. The judge was Nathan Perlman, a former congressman who had opposed prohibition, gaining him favor with certain crucial people. He was a well-known name, long thereafter prominent in Jewish affairs. The writer is Michael Benson, author of more than 60 books, some in the true crime realm, some about the mafia. He writes, in a tough guy mode, people get whacked, or at prison they sizzle. That complicates his hopes of being taken seriously, but he has done his homework in many venues across the country. That the Jews seem to win all the fights also strains credulity a bit. But, after all, the Jewish mobsters knew how to recruit. They got big-name former boxers, and they got professional thugs, people drawn to that line of work by their size and their proclivities, tested and hardened in action. 
Meanwhile, the Nazis they assaulted weren't necessarily in those categories. While today we picture neo-Nazis as sleeveless skinheads with tattoos, guys on macho trips, Hitler attracted all types. When a Nazi attack by the Jews in this story is described as being in retail, the fight seems unfair. Not that German-Americans in general were Nazis. This author makes clear more than once that we're talking about a small minority of Germans. Still, photos of swastika-bedecked parades and various gatherings, including a famous one at the old Madison Square Garden in New York, attended by thousands, make clear that the American Nazi phenomenon, generally known as the Bund, was not to be laughed off. And there were no laws against hate speech. The authorities had difficulty coming up with constitutional rationales for banning Nazi dinners and speeches and such. Enter the gangsters. About the gangsters, author Benson approvingly quotes the son of one. If a Palestinian Jew, a Jew in pre-state Israel, was born here, he'd be a gangster. The point is that this was the way for an ambitious young man to rise out of the mean slums to overcome the virtual ban on Jews in legitimate enterprises. In fact, though, even this story involves judges, politicians, rabbis, and others who found other ways up. Such stories are legion. As for the judge's approach, the book invites this question. If similar circumstances arose today, would beating up the Nazis be the way to handle it? Such fights today could not be contained as mere brawls. Guns would be unleashed. Indeed, the absence of guns is one of the intriguing aspects of this story. The Jews had their orders. As for the Nazis, author Benson doesn't get into their side of the story much. One is left to speculate about what constrained them. Let's just say it's a period piece. Best is just to ask who should play whom. Many names in the story are familiar to Jewish in Jewish American history. Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Mickey Cohen, Longy Zwillman from New Jersey, Jack Ruby, yes, that Jack Ruby, Louis Lef Lepke Buchalter, Abe Kid Twist Relis, Davy Berman, Siegel's successor in Las Vegas, Mo Dalitz, Cleveland, Cleveland, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, Al Capone's number two guy in Chicago, and Barney Ross the famed former boxer who was afraid he could be prosecuted for murder if he used his world-famous fists in a brawl. Other juicy movie roles, Char uh, Father Charles Coughlin, the main anti-Semite of the radio airwaves, and the would-be Hitler of America, Fritz Kuhn. The most important work this book does is not to tell us that certain Jews responded to anti-Semitism in a cinematic way. It is to remind us that the Nazi movement had an American arm. These events the gangsters disrupted were happening across the country. Retired Dayton Daily News editorial writer Martin Gottlieb is the author of Lincoln's Northern Nemesis, The War Opposition, and Exile of Ohio's Clement Volandingham. He is also the advisor to the Dayton Jewish Observer. And next, the obituary section of the Observer. Dr. Stephen M. Cohen, age 70, passed away peacefully June 25th after battling many years of chronic illnesses. He leaves to mourn his loving wife of 42 years, Jude, and beloved children, Kelly Cohen, Daniel Cohen, and Rachel, and their son Ryan, and Alex Cohen, and Rebecca, and their daughter Isla, and Magnolia. 
Stephen is also survived by his sister, Harleen and Stephen Johnson, brother Herbert Cohen, brother-in-law Michael and Barbara Ryan, and nieces and nephews. Our family is fortunate to have several cherished friends that are considered family. You know who you are. Steve obtained both his undergraduate degree in biology and his doctor of medicine degree from the University of Cincinnati. He entered the U.S. Army Medical Corps in 1978 and focused his residency and later practice on internal medicine. After discharge from active duty, Steve devoted 30 years to serving U.S. veterans at the Dayton VA Medical Center. He held the position of Chief of Ambulatory Care, Chief of Staff, and the Director of VAMC. Steve enjoyed teaching and he was a faculty member and member of the Admissions Committee of the Boonshot School of Medicine at Wright State University for many years. Steve was also active in the Dayton Jewish community. He served as a two-term president of Temple Beth Orr and chaired Jewish Family Services of Dayton's Jewish Federation. Interment was at David Cemetery. Steve requested a party be held in celebration of his life at a later date. The family would like to thank the many caregivers we were blessed with on our journey. The staff at Kettering Health Washington Township, Otterbane Springboro, Home Instead, and Hospice of Dayton gave us all extraordinary care with a smile. Donations may be made to Hospice of Dayton, the American Heart Association, or the American Diabetes Association. Richard Gruber was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He was born with health, health issues and they did not expect him to live to age five, but he surpassed their expectations and they readjusted the expectation that he would not live to see age 20. Being the rebel that he was, he once again defied the odds. Rich chose to attend college in Nebraska where he learned to ride horses and formed unbreakable bonds with people. Rich ended up passing away at age 75 on July 7, 2022, living his life to the fullest with friends, family, and lots of adventure. Rich married the love of his life, Hindi Bloom Gruber, and they had two kids, Rachel and Elliot Gruber. In 1982, they moved to Ohio due to the opportunity for Rich to work at NCR as a consultant. Rich loved NCR and was proud of his work there, and more importantly, he made lifelong friends there that loved and supported him until his last breath. His sister, Diane Paul, lives in New York to this day, and despite the miles between them, they spoke every day. Rich will forever be remembered for his uniqueness, humor, intelligence, quirkiness, creativity, chattiness, spirit, and passion. Rich was loved by many, and his legacy will live on through the impact he made on the lives of everyone he met. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery, Donations can be made to the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. Terry Mitzman, age 65, passed away on July 2nd. She is survived by her husband, Mark Mitzman, daughters Jennifer and Brian Rostachan, Mitzman and Melanie and Scott Morales, parents Julius and Betty Loser, sister Francis and Steve Balf, grandchildren Naomi, Yoni, Reina, and Cecilia, many nieces, cousins, and friends. Interment was at New Agudas Achim Cemetery in Columbus. Terry and Mark lived in Dayton for 20 years and raised their daughters here. They were active members of Beth Jacob Congregation. Terry was mostly a stay-at-home mom, but her love of people led her into many years of part-time work in retail sales. 
She could also be found several times per week playing mahjong with friends at Meadowbrook Country Club. Much of the beautiful artwork in her home came from her needlepoint hobby. Contributions in Terry's memory may be made to Lifeline of Ohio at lifelineofohio.org, Beth Jacob Congregation, or a charity of the donor's choice. Edwin M. Ziskin, December 10, 1932 to December 22, 2021. Ed was born in Dayton to Molly and Abe Ziskin on December 10, 1932, and spent the first five years of his life in Dayton, where he went to Longfellow School for kindergarten. The family then moved to Piqua, where Molly opened her own dress shop, and Abe worked for Val Decker Meatpacking Company, where he carried sides of beef to restaurants in Dayton, a trip he made daily. Ed went to Piqua grade in high school, where he graduated in 1950. He briefly attended the Ohio State University, but when he returned to Piqua in 1953 to work alongside his father, he was drafted into the Army. After boot camp, Ed was sent overseas to Eniwetok, a mile-long atoll in the Marshall Islands. His uniform of the day was khaki shorts, Hawaiian shirts, and flip-flops. His R&R was Hawaii, almost 3,000 miles away. His year there was quite eventful as the government was conducting secret thermonuclear tests near the Eniwetok Atoll. In all, Ed witnessed 13 tests in the year he was there, but what he talked about most was seeing sharks feeding on garbage, looking at huge clams and eels, and suddenly being stranded in deep shark-infested water when the tide changed. He laughed about cookouts on the beach with steaks he had ordered um, as a supply sergeant. After his discharge from the Army, Ed once again tried higher education at Ohio State. Golfing and enjoying time with his new friends interfered with his studies, and once again Ed returned to Piqua for work. He had many sales jobs, including selling radio time and wind light signs, but then two friends, Charlie Scomer and Bernie Malcolm, offered Ed a chance to be in business for himself, and that was the beginning of Colonial Stone and Piqua in the Armco Quarry. Beautiful limestone was blasted out, cut into building-sized pieces with a diamond-cut saw and sold for use in walls and homes. His stone was used at Houston Woods Park and Burr Oak State Park. While at Ohio State, Ed met Patsy. They married in 1957 and had three children, Jan, Sam, and Linda. Trips to the quarry always meant the family dog would go swimming to the, in the pond. It also meant a visit to see Abe and Molly, Ed loved golf, his golfing buddies, jazz, and old movies. He had a passion for classic clothes, shoes, and hats, which included steaming and cleaning in the old-fashioned way. He loved his golden retriever, Jake. He enjoyed eating out at his favorite places and was known to travel for food. We'd go to Cincinnati to the Maisonette and the Blue Ribbon for fried rice, Columbus to the top for lobster tails and a martini with no vermouth, also to Columbus, to Massey's for pizza, and the Claremont for onion soup and banana cream pie. Shapiro's in Indianapolis for corned beef and Greenville for made rights. He ordered rye bread from Davis Bakery in Cleveland, which was delivered by UPS. One time, we made the rounds looking for ribs, found Burbanks in Cincinnati, and when they closed, went to Tip City to Hickory River Barbecue. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. 
This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.